Hi everyone, my name is Deborah Kahn. I'm the founder of Being Patient. Welcome to our first Brain Talks, where I'm really excited to announce that we are gonna talk about the topic of ketones, an alternative source of fuel for our brains. Well, I'm happy to um, have with me Ed Blondes. He's an assistant clinical professor in the Department of Clinical Pharmacy at the University of California at San Francisco. He's a biochemist with more than 20 25 years of experience in the fields of health and nutrition. And he's written seven books um, on the subject and most recently uh, published a paper on the neuroenergetics of diseases like Alzheimer's. Ed, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. So, Ed, let's go back to the very basics. Um, what does it exactly mean when we say fuel for our brains? Well, the brain is, of course, one of the more important organs in our body, and it's set up as a in a special area. It's put inside a bony protective skull, and uh, uh, it's got its own little border guard, uh, the border guard which only lets certain substances into it. It's called the blood-brain barrier. So we might think that uh, when we cut ourselves and we have access and we're bleeding and stuff, that same blood flows into our brain. It does not. It, it goes up through our neck and then it flows near what's called the blood-brain barrier and only certain substances are allowed into the brain. So uh, proteins, I mean, it, it basically makes sure that only the right stuff gets in and the right stuff gets out. And the reason this is important as regards Alzheimer's disease is that the glucose, which is in our bloodstream, uh, which can be for some people in very high levels, is not necessarily going to be in a high level in our brain. Uh, in fact, as we age, as all of us age, even people that never get Alzheimer's, less and less glucose gets across that blood-brain barrier the older and older we get. And uh, uh, it's my feeling that this is one of the reasons, uh, one of the basic paradigms that we need to look into to try and find out why Alzheimer's begins in the first place. Okay, so when we, um, so glucose is what naturally fuels our brains, but when we say ketones as an alternative fuel, what exactly does that mean? Okay, so let's say we're starving. Uh, we haven't eaten for a while. No food in the body. We don't just drop dead. Our brain just doesn't shut down. The body has ways of dealing with secondary and even tertiary fuels. We'll actually start to digest ourselves. We'll break down our muscles. We'll, of course, use our fats. Uh, we'll use all the resources we have to make sure the brain is well supplied because the brain's the thing that's got to get us thinking about where to go to get our next meal. Uh, so when there's no food coming in, our body doesn't really store glucose and glucose is the primary fuel for the brain. When we're lying, we're not, when we're sort of like resting, about two thirds of the glucose in our blood is actually used by the brain for its metabolism. It relies, it craves glucose. So when we're starving, where's it gonna get the glucose? It's not. It has to turn to one of those secondary fuels. And one of the secondary fuels is a breakdown product of fats. Now, we're not eating, we use fats for energy to fuel the body. But when we don't have glucose, the fats don't burn completely. They're only partially metabolized. And one of those byproducts 
is what's called a ketone or a ketone body. That's the substance which has the ability to go in our blood, cross that blood-brain barrier, and provide the fuel for the brain, even when we haven't had a meal in days or weeks. So um, are, could we say that actually ketones are better for our brain than glucose? I'm, I'm actually personally really confused about glucose. I mean, we hear so much bad things about sugar, but it's an essential food for our brain. Um, carbohydrates break down into glucose. That feeds our brain um, and, and sugar for that matter. Um, so is, is there a bad type of glucose and a good um, type of glucose for our brain? And then Second to that is, are ketones actually a better source of fuel? Okay. Uh, the bad glucose is more glucose than your body needs. The good glucose is any glucose under that level. There's nothing wrong with glucose. There's nothing wrong with sugar, provided it's in an appropriate amount. When you get too much glucose, bad things start to happen. Uh, we start to get elevated blood glucose. We end up having the risk of obesity, of diabetes, and so forth. This is not inherently a part or problem of glucose. It's only a problem when you have excess glucose. So glucose is very important. It is the only fuel that releases its energy without oxygen. Do we now, know let me, why? Let me, let, me, let me go a little bit further on okay. this. If, if all of a sudden now I'm in California, there were to be an earthquake, I'm now at a state of rest. So my breathing is to provide enough oxygen to just keep everything going. But if there was an earthquake and I needed to run out of the room, I wouldn't have to start and breathe deep to get my oxygen level up in my blood to get the energy. No, I could run immediately because I've got glucose in my bloodstream and that provides what's called anaerobic energy, energy without oxygen. So we rely on glucose to be in our bloodstream to provide that instant energy. It's a survival thing. So we always want to make sure there's glucose in our blood, but not too much, because when you have too much, you can have problems. Why do we have less glucose as we age? Well, this is a problem with our vascular system. As you get older, all the sins of our life whether it's uh, blood pressure issues, diabetes, obesity, less activity, our vascular system, the blood supply for the body starts to get this accumulation of all of our bad habits. And, and so the blood-brain barrier is a reflection of the general health of the vascular system. So as our risk of heart disease goes up, so too will the problems with the vascular system that will be expressed in the blood-brain barrier. And that's one of the reasons why less and less glucose is able to cross the older we get. Okay, and we're getting a question from um, one of our viewers who asks, what about the long-term effects of ketone bodies in the brain? Um, has, has there been any studies on that? Well, ketones will be produced usually when our body doesn't take in enough glucose. This is what's called endogenous glucose, endogenous ketones. They're the ones that are produced by our body. And the only time our body really produces substantial amounts of ketones is when there's no carbohydrates around. That's either through starvation or going on what's called a ketogenic diet 
a diet where there's no carbs or not enough to provide all the glucose the body needs. There have been studies on long-term ketogenic diets where you go on uh, these long-term with no carbs where people have been on that for months at a time and they haven't really reported any problems, but these are diets that are very well constructed. These are ones that have lots of uh, all the other nutrients and the person's in good health to begin with. But unfortunately, a lot of people go on the ketogenic diet and eat crap. They eat fried foods, fatty foods, you know, all the, the rich foods, and they don't really have lots of uh, plant-based foods that the body needs to help deal with the fats that we eat. So a poorly constructed ketogenic diet is gonna get you into trouble. Now, again, I'm talking about endogenous ketones. What about if you were to take ketones orally? These are exogenous ketones. Right. Wait, so before we go there, I, I know where you're going and I wanna understand, but how many different types of ketones are there? Um, and are, are some forms better than others? Okay, there's uh, basically when we are in a low carb or starvation mode, the body basically produces three ketones. One of them is called acetone. Now acetone doesn't really get absorbed and it's it, it basically gets exhaled. And that's why people that are on a ketogenic diet or are in ketosis, which is a state where you have elevated levels of ketones in the blood, you can actually smell the sweetness in their breath. That is the smell of acetone. The other one is called 3-hydroxybutyrate, complicated name, and the third one is acetoacetate. Those are the three ketone, ketone bodies that are the breakdown products when fat is partially metabolized in a body that doesn't have enough glucose. So what, um, so when, which ones do we really want for our brains? Which, which type of ketone is the best type for our brain? Well, you could do it one of two ways. You can have a fatty acid, which is a precursor to uh, being broken down into ketones, or we could have either 3-hydroxybutyrate, which probably is, is the best one, or acetoacetate, those would be the two that you would want. 3-hydroxybutyrate is probably uh, the most uh, reliable one, but right now they're doing some research on having ketones given intravenously, and they use both acetoacetate and 3-hydroxybutyrate, but that's more in the research realm, and that's not something that you're gonna be taking. So when, me, if it were me, it would be 3-hydroxybutyrate would be the way. Okay, and when Earlier, you said um, you could is, you know, can we take these orally? Is there is there a way to supplement ketones? Yes, but you don't want to get ahead of yourself here. Why would you want to supplement ketones? Well, if it's good, if it's good for my brain, why not? But it's only going to be good for your brain if your brain is not getting the glucose it needs. So, so how would one determine that? All right, the primary thing is to maintain the health of your vascular system. The primary focus of anybody who's interested in making sure that their brain gets the fuel it needs is not to turn to ketones as the first approach. It's to eat a plant-based, healthful diet, stay active physically, keep your vascular system healthy, control high blood pressure, diabetes, 
all of these other factors. You need to control your vascular system. That's got to be number one. Now, if doing all of that and you still are having issues, then you might, you know, then would be a time that you would even consider doing it. But that shouldn't be the first thing you turn to. Okay, and we just got a question in from another viewer who says, I feel guilty as I eat a recess peanut butter cup with my coffee as I watch this. Is there any specific fruits which we should consider eating for brain health? For fruits? Yes. Well, well I would say all fruits and vegetables are going to be good for brain health because when you consider a whole food, a whole food is something that has evolved in nature. It's withstood all the insults that nature can throw its way, whether it's the oxidizing rays of the sun or the insects or bad weather or just any type of abuse that a plant can't get up and run away. It has to have synthesized all of these self-protective compounds. And it's only if we eat that whole food that we get this whole complement of beneficial substances. So whole foods, plant-based, that's the way to go. So there's nothing wrong with having a, a Reese's peanut butter cup with a cup of coffee. It, that's fine. You just make room for it and enjoy it. If you don't enjoy what you're eating, what's life about? <laughs> so you have to, you're, you're, you subscribe to a balance. Is that right? Oh, most assuredly, <laughs> yeah. Okay, so I guess one of the confusions I have in all of this is, you know, I think I'm a fairly healthy person. I eat well, I exercise every day, but how do I know what's going on inside my body to monitor the health of my brain? All right, it's, it's a difficult thing to, to, to really understand because we really don't have any of the moment types of ways of going in and take a snapshot the same way you put a cuff on and measure your blood pressure. There's no way to put a cuff around your head and find out if it's got enough energy. Uh, so in many cases, we have to rely on the, the results of not enough energy uh, because you only know when there's problems if there's not enough. So th there's a couple of things you can do. One of them is I, I do recommend that people that are, are concerned find out what their genetic profile is. Uh, because I've done this 23andMe, there's other companies that do this. There's this one particular gene, uh, which is the APOE gene. And there's one form of this gene, and we get one gene from our mom and one from our dad. So we have two copies of that in our body. And people that have the APOE4 have a higher risk of Alzheimer's disease. But most people have the APOE3. And that's an average risk. So I had my 23andMe. I have, uh, uh, I've got an average risk. I'm very active, just like you, Deborah. I exercise every other day. I keep my weight under control. I eat a healthy whole foods diet. I do not eat ketones. I don't need ketones because I've got a vascular system that's taking care of business. Uh, but if I had the APOE4 gene, I might think otherwise. Or if I had diabetes, hypertension, or any of these other factors that could affect uh, my vascular system and how effectively the glucose gets into the brain. But we, 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 we're getting ahead of ourselves because we need some, we need the data to make sure that this is all connected. I'm looking at all the animal research and all the biochemistry and the basic metabolic research. To me, the dots are all connected, but we're looking to connect the dots to get all the neurologists on board to view this as one of the primary causes of Alzheimer's. And once that happens, there are tests that you can do, but they haven't been developed yet, but there are ways to detect 
whether your brain has enough energy. Okay, and we should also point out that, you know, getting genetic testing is something that people have to seriously consider. Um, there, there are a lot of people who have found out their genetic profiles and, you know, it's really been a significant change in their lives. So um, most experts would recommend that you do um, seek genetic counseling before you actually go out and get um, a 23andMe or a test to find out um, more about what that elevated risk means. But you do raise an important point, Ed, which is, you know, if you are at elevated risk for Alzheimer's or dementia, there's there's more research turning towards how do we lower that risk? What can we do to prevent um, getting Alzheimer's or reducing our risk? So how much do you believe we have control over that through nutrition? Well, through nutrition and lifestyle, I think we have a tremendous amount of control. Uh, so I mentioned APOE4. Just because you have APOE4 is no guarantee that you're going to get Alzheimer's. Absolutely. The same yep. way that not having APOE4, having APOE3, or even APOE2, which is protective, is no guarantee that you won't get Alzheimer's. A lot of it depends on what you bring to the party, how you've lived your life. You can look at your family tree and find out, is Alzheimer's something that's present in my family? Uh, there's other types of dementia, too. There's what's called a vascular dementia, where the, it's the blood flow to the brain that is impacted by, by a stroke. And this is what causes the cognitive impairment. It's not the same as Alzheimer's, but it has the same uh, net effect in terms of there's a cognitive decline. It's different, but Alzheimer's is, is now believed to be the main uh, uh, problem as regards uh, cognitive decline. It's the main source. So the way you reduce your risk is that you've got to live a life that is conducive to lower risk. Uh, I, I just was at my 50th high school reunion, and you see a lot of people that are nice and big, some very big, and, you know, they get to the point that they start having these health problems. And, and I wrote back to them, look, life is a, an accumulation of your life's experiences. It's tough to get all the way up to the point where something goes wrong and then expect there to be an immediate cure to make it all better. It's best as early as possible for us and for our children to encourage them to eat well and have a healthy lifestyle so this won't even be on the plate as a possibility as you get into your sixth or seventh or eighth decades of life. Right. And one other thing is that this is a process that actually begins midlife. It's right. in the 30s and 40s and 50s that the process has begun. It's only in the 60s and 70s that we start to experience a cognitive decline, but by then it's been going on for decades. And what I'm hoping is looking at this from a neuroenergetic standpoint, we'll start looking at people early in life, we'll measure how efficiently, and the tests will be developed, how efficiently the glucose is getting into their brain, and then they'll go in periodically, just like we go in for a colonoscopy every now and then. And when it gets to the point that not enough glucose is getting into that brain, we know that the brain is gonna start to make this amyloid. And we can discuss why it's doing that in a second. And this is when people will start to change their diet, maybe have those fatty acids that become ketones, and maybe even consider adding those 
exogenous supplementary ketones to get that energy into the body. But once science is on that track, we will find a lot of different ways to improve the energy status of the brain. Okay, and we have a, an interesting question coming in right now um, saying for a person who has early um, onset Alzheimer's or maybe the early stage they mean of Alzheimer's, what is the ideal time to fast between dinner and breakfast and how frequently is it recommended to fast per week to get the ketogenic benefit? I would not fast. Why? I, I really? Not, no, I, I think we need the nutrients from food. Uh, if you've got a, a weight problem, you want to, of course, lose weight. But, uh, you know, you have to fast for 24 to 48 hours before ketones start being produced. We have uh, a type of stored glucose in our liver called glycogen. And as soon as, you know, between meals, the liver starts to break down the glycogen to keep that blood glucose level up. Uh, we need that blood glucose because if you were to need to sprint across the room or get out of harm's way, you need to have glucose in your bloodstream. So you can't just fast between meals and think that that's going to be solving a problem. It's better to eat a healthful diet and make sure that you have a plant-based, like a Mediterranean-style diet, which has been correlated with a lower risk of, of, of Alzheimer's. Uh, and you eat well and... Work on that. Now, if you've got a situation like this questioner said, where you've got early onset Alzheimer's, you still want to eat well, but then you should talk to your neurologist or who's taking care of you and find out would it be reasonable for us to, to even experiment with some of these exogenous ketones, but work with your neurologist. Don't just start it on your own. Yeah, and we should point out that Ed is not a medical doctor, so we're certainly not intending to be right. prescriptive um, in this interview, but rather just give you the right information about the biochemistry, what's going on inside our brains, so that you can make the right um ask the right questions to your doctor um, as to what their opinion is um, about how you can live a healthier life for your brain. So another question has come on. Um Say, um, saying, so does this mean that carbs are bad for your brain? No, carbs are essential for your brain. Glucose is a carb. It's when you don't have enough of that carb that you run into trouble. Carbs only become a problem when you're eating simple sugars, soda pops, added sweeteners, processed foods. So refined, refined sugars do not convert into glucose um, for our brains. Is that right? No, refined sugars become glucose. All carbs become glucose. Even so why not just then eat a teaspoon of sugar every day? Because that won't cross the blood-brain barrier. That's the key. Just getting it into your bloodstream doesn't get it where it needs to go. And if your sugar, your blood sugar growth gets too high, and you do that on a routine basis, you could end up having what's called insulin resistance, which is a risk factor for Alzheimer's because it makes it that much harder for the glucose to get across the blood-brain barrier. So don't be afraid of carbs. Just be afraid of adding simple sugars, too much sugar. Keep carbs in their place and don't have added sugar. Whole foods, not processed foods.
Okay, I want to talk a little bit about coconut and coconut, uh, coconuts and coconut oil. I can't tell you how many researchers have said to me, you know, um, it drives them crazy when people come and say, if I just take coconut oil, will I never get Alzheimer's? So why does that confusion exist? And what's really the truth about coconut oil? Well, in our, in these days, and there's just so much information out there and so much misinformation as well. I mean, we saw what's, what goes on with, with Facebook and all these other nonsense out there. I'm dealing with rumors and, and uh, scientific nonsense that gets portrayed in the same way that politics can be twisted. Uh, so can science appear to be twisted as well. And uh, so coconut has a, uh, it grows in a very tropical climate. Uh, normally one of the big enemies of lipids is oxidation. Uh, but because coconuts grow in a very hot climate, it tends to be much more saturated. Saturated fats don't oxidize as readily as unsaturated fats. So we tend to find very saturated fats in, in tropical like the, the palm kernel and the coconut, but only 8%, 8% of the fatty acids in coconut oil actually get turned into ketones. The rest of them are just saturated fatty acids, calories. So if you're, so, yeah, go ahead. So, so it's a source of ketones. However, you'd have to eat a heck of a lot in order to get the benefits for your brain. Exactly. Uh, so one of the one of the questioners that uh, posted a question that said that uh, she has a tablespoon of coconut oil between meals. And she wanted mm -hmm. to know what, what that would do for her. All right, a tablespoon of coconut oil would be about 14 grams of fat. 8% of that would be maybe a gram of that eight carbon fatty acid. A gram of caprylic acid, that eight carbon fatty acid, isn't going to do anything for your brain. No significant effect. So just so we'd have to take we'd have to have like a, a whole bottle of coconut oil before we even saw the benefits to our brain. Yeah. And then you'd have other problems. And so so it goes against the theory that what's good for your heart is good for the brain, because if you're eating too much fat, that's definitely not good for your heart. Right. Exactly. And so the whole idea of coconut oil as being the way to go is it, there's no. There's no biochemical logic to that because you want a specific fatty acid that is found in coconut, 8% of it, and it's 4% in palm kernel oil. Uh, so you don't want to eat coconut oil. And then there's also questions about uh, virgin coconut versus other coconut. Organic versus, we had a question around organic versus regular right. coconut. Now, I'm, a, I'm a big uh, uh, proponent of organic basically because for its environmental and for the farm workers. But the the whole idea be, behind virgin coconut, I mean, I don't even know why they call it virgin coconut. We, we get this from virgin olive oil, where, you know, the extra virgin olive oil, you get all the phytochemicals that are present in the olive that are then in the olive oil. Whereas where you deal with refined olive oil, you just have the fatty acids. And when you have olive oil, you want all those phytochemicals, but with coconut, you're not interested in those phytochemicals. They really don't have that many phytochemicals. The main protectant of the coconut is that shell. 
uh, and uh, the fact that it's mostly saturated fat. It doesn't have all of those same phytochemicals that you find in olives and nuts and so forth, where they have exposure to the environment. And with coconut, you just want those fatty acids. So the same fatty acids will be in virgin versus extra virgin versus conventional. It's all got the same fatty acids, that same 8% caprylic acid. So opt for organic from uh, societal benefits for the workers and so forth. And I like to encourage farmers to grow organically, but it's not going to make a bit of difference in terms of your thoughts for nourishing the brain. Okay, and so um, this brings us back to if we know that ketones are good for our brains and if there's a way to supplement ketones, why not just do it? Why Why not? That's expensive uh, right now. Um, so how would you get, how would you get um, an, a, an, a supplement of ketones? These are the types of products that you can buy. You can go to Amazon. You can buy them. They're powders. And one tablespoon of those will give you 11 grams of beta-hydroxybutyrate. There's Which is more than you get in a coconut or a coconut oil. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And then there's other products like uh, that are just concentrated sources of caprylic acid that are being sold as dietary supplements as well. So as long as you're getting just that beta-hydroxybutyrate or its precursor, which is that eight carbon long, then you're, you know, then you're in the game. But just turning to coconuts is is a bit problematic. What's the research behind all of this, though? So has there been any research on the supplementation of ketones? Well, there is some research being done right now at the University of Sherbrooke in Canada. Uh, Dr. Stephen Cunane is basically taking people with cognitive impairment and supplementing them with ketones and finding improvements in cognition. Uh, they've done that with uh, experimental animals. Uh, so th there is research, a body of research that's growing with cognition. Now, this is just, these are just people that already have Alzheimer's. Uh, what I'm dealing with, with the neurohygienic hypothesis, is to stop Alzheimer's from even beginning. Once we get to the point where we know there's not enough brain, don't wait for the cognitive impairment to already take hold because then you've got decades of problems that have developed to the point till you finally realize, I don't know what day it is. I mean, you don't want to wait that long. And so I'm trying to nurse science and science is very slow when it comes to these types of changes. Uh, we're trying to get to the point where people will start to look at ways of preventing Alzheimer's. I believe Alzheimer's is a preventable disease. I don't think we're going to find a cure for Alzheimer's. Because once you've got it, the damage has been done. Uh, they've tried doing various uh, pharmaceuticals that will improve your cognition, but nothing has really worked. No drugs have been able to stop Alzheimer's or reverse Alzheimer's. They can slow it down, but nothing's working. And that's why I'm hoping that looking at it from neuroenergetics will actually be able to stop it in its tracks before it even starts. Okay, so when you talk about neuroenergetics, is that simply put the blood flow that gets to our brains? No, that's the energy in your brain. Neuro is brain, energetics is energy. So it's the energy status in your brain, neuroenergetic status. And so what I came up with, this is called the neuroenergetic hypothesis. I'm not the first person to have used that term, but I'm the first person to apply it to the etiology 
of Alzheimer's disease, saying that it might have a basic role inside that black box of why Alzheimer's begins. Okay, so when we know we know the um, pathology of the disease, the presumed pathology starts with beta amyloid plaque in our brain. That plaque can appear um, decades before we see a first symptom. So what is it that you believe we could do in order to prevent those? What's happening um, inside our brains where feasibly it could be prevented? The plaque buildup can be prevented. Okay, and this is an interesting story, okay? So we're dealing with uh, a level of glucose that needs to be present in the brain. And uh, we're realizing there can be plenty and sometimes excess glucose in our bloodstream, especially if you're overweight, you've got diabetes, you have all these other issues going on. So the brain doesn't have enough glucose, but there's plenty of glucose in what I refer to as the lower 48, the rest of the body. The brain is getting starved. It's not getting its energy. And it starts to react as though something is using up this glucose. And an interesting fact is that microbial organisms, now here we're talking about bacteria, viruses, funguses, for them to be successful, they have to be able to outcompete their host for essential resources. Now the main resource that all these organisms require is glucose. They require the same glucose that we do. So when the brain is not getting enough glucose and there's plenty of glucose elsewhere in the body, it starts to react as though it is under microbial attack. It thinks some bugs are grabbing the glucose, so it calls on the immune system to get to the brain to kill it, the same way it would if we have an infection anywhere else in our body. But, one of the things that the brain has in its arsenal, it can make its own antimicrobial substance, and that actually happens to be beta amyloid. That same substance that when it builds up can cause cognitive impairment is actually produced by the brain in the hopes of defending itself. But here we're dealing with a situation where we don't have a microbial infection, we have not enough glucose getting through the blood-brain barrier, so the beta amyloid doesn't kill the microbe, and the situation just keeps going on and on and on, and the plaque keeps building up until we can't remember what day it is. Okay, and we've had one um, viewer ask um, a really good question. Can neuroenergetic status be measured? Yes, it can. Uh, there's now expensive tests right now where they put a label on glucose and they can measure how effectively it gets across the blood-brain barrier. It's a type of PET scan with a, uh, a special label on glucose and they can see how much of it is able to cross the blood-brain barrier. Uh, yeah, so, but uh, the problem with that though is like PET scans are really expensive. Most of us can't afford them, right? Yep, exactly. So w eventually there will be a way to make it They'll find a way to do this because there's lots to be made if they can make this a little bit more affordable. The other thing is before the beta amyloid is made, I talked about not enough glucose and then the brain started to make the beta, beta amyloid. There is a precursor protein that the brain turns into beta amyloid when there's not enough glucose. When there is enough glucose, this precursor protein gets turned into 
other types of compounds called peptides that are soluble and they can exit the brain through the blood-brain barrier. This is how it normally happens for most of our life until there's not enough glucose. I am predicting that there will be a test that will measure the level of these soluble peptides in our blood. They'll be able to track that level as we age. And when that level of those soluble peptides starts to get down too low, then we'll be able to make the inference that something is going wrong and there's not enough glucose in the brain. Then you would go into your doctor, maybe get the PET scan, do the complete workup and so forth. But I'm thinking that pathology, the testing will catch up once we view neuroenergetics as being a key player in the pathology of Alzheimer's disease. Okay, and um, another um, viewer just wrote in saying ketones can supply 70% of brains and the brain's energy requirements. Is that true? Yes, if we're starving, um, that's what we rely on. When we go on a ketogenic diet, those ketones can step up. There are other negatives to ketones. When you are on a ketogenic diet, you, you have kind of like a, a foggy type feeling. You know, your get up and go got up and went because you don't have enough glucose in your bloodstream. So if you were to try and run up a flight of stairs while you're on a ketogenic diet, you're going to start huffing and puffing before you get to the top. Uh, it's really you, you're not going to have any anaerobic, no oxygen required source of fuel. So there's negatives to that. And then also you're cutting out a big portion of foods in your diet when you can't have carbs. And right. a lot of those provide very essential and helpful nutrients. You can survive, but it's it's really not living. Uh, so are you saying it's, it's not for people who don't need to lose weight? Well, I don't even recommend the ketogenic diet for losing weight because when you go on the ketogenic diet to lose weight, the main weight you lose is actually water weight. Uh, I, the first chapter I wrote was on this. They put people on a... 800 calorie diet. So let's say we all need about 2000 calories a day. When you put people on an 800 calorie diet, they're going to lose weight. They put some people on a mixed diet and then other people on a, uh, a ketogenic diet. And they found that the people that were on the ketogenic diet lost more weight than the people on the mixed diet. But they did body composition tests of those people and they found the difference in weight they were losing, they both lost the same amount of body fat, but the people on the ketogenic diet were losing body water. So then when they went to the second half of the study, they kicked them up to a 1200 calorie diet. They all still, 1200 calorie mixed diet. They still should continue to lose weight. The people that went from the 800 to the 1200 continue to lose weight, but the people that went from the 800 ketogenic to the 1200 mixed, they started gaining weight because they were gaining back all the water. So you will lose weight on a ketogenic diet, but it's only water weight. It's water weight and then the calorie differential. And as soon as you go off it, you're gaining it all back. Okay. Well, one thing I'm a little confused about, and I see like some of our viewers are getting upset thinking, well, no, I, I'm on it and I exercise. I have a lot of energy. 
Um, we do see our friends who have gone on the ketogenic diet. Some of them are really bulking up, right? It's like, it seems like it's like the, the CrossFit crowd or the weightlifting crowd does like this diet because it does put on a lot of muscle so it would appear. Um, so how do you explain that? Well, I, I would say that it's the activities that they're doing that work well. If the body goes on a ketogenic diet for a period of time, it will adapt. It will maximize the certain types of nerve endings. You know, you can do, you can uh, optimize this type of diet. Most of those people tend to be young, uh, younger in life where their body's much more responsive to working out. If this is what you want, that's fine. But here we're talking about the ketogenic diet uh, in relation to brain health. And uh, uh, it's, they're probably not in a situation where they're in that kind of, of a problem and you don't have to do it that way. You could eat a mixed diet where you're not on a ketogenic diet and still have the same results in terms of, of strength training. Okay, and we have um, a, a question that was asked um, earlier um, by a woman who said, I recently switched to a ketogenic diet and I've been researching whether it would be beneficial to my mom with dementia at this point or whether I should just let her do what she wants within reason, of course, and enjoy the pleasure she gets from eating th the things she likes. What should I do? All right, if somebody already has Alzheimer's and you're taking care of them, I mean, I've I have a mother-in-law um, who has Alzheimer's that so we've been she's she's in marvelous shape. Uh, she can't remember 15 seconds after she says something, but she's great. And and I always I always I tell her, you know, you can have heart disease, you can have cancer, you can have osteoporosis, you can have all these things that go wrong. The only thing that is wrong with you is that you can't remember things, but you otherwise you're in great health, you're in great shape. And she is, she looks beautiful, she takes care of herself, she just can't remember stuff. So I've got a whole set of lists that she goes around, what I'm doing, what's going on, why I can't remember things, because she has to be reacquainted with everything. I highly recommend index cards for anybody with uh, that's a caregiver for somebody with Alzheimer's to sort of refresh them, find out what they constantly ask over and over again, give them a set of cards to help them so that they can feel comfortable where they are. Now, getting back to your question about what they should do, the ketogenic diet is not anything, to my understanding, that somebody with Alzheimer's will gravitate towards because this is they're, they're into the hedonics of eating. They're not going to want to be deprived of something, and you want to have them enjoy life uh, as best they can, to eat the things that they like, to stay as active as they like, to be as socially involved have a peer group of other people. There's ways, places to go where you can keep your mind as active as possible. So I don't think enforcing a ketogenic diet on someone is the way to go. Now, you can speak with your neurologist as to whether you can experiment with adding some of those exogenous ketones into their daily regimen. And rather than just starting that, I would see if you can come up with a series of benchmarks uh, you know your your parents, you know your your relative, you know what they're like. Have some sort of indexes. Ask them certain questions, what they know, what they don't know. Have them draw a clock. Have them draw all sorts of things to measure their cognitive status before you start with any type of exogenous ketones, and you and also before you know get the okay from your neurologist, your neurologist, and work with her or him on doing that. See if you can find a way uh, to get some sort of, and keep track, keep records, 
find out if it works and and then you can try something else and and see what works i mean or you could just be comfortable and loving and nurturing and and not view your parent as a uh, as being in a clinical trial and try to make their life as enjoyable as possible this is a decision that you have to make with that individual in conjunction with their healthcare individual we we get a lot of questions though ed on um right what the right diet is what type of food there's a lot of eating issues with um people with dementia or alzheimer's um you know many of them say oh i can't get my um husband to eat anything what should i do or you know my my wife is eating all the wrong things what should i do um are there essential nutrients um that we know i mean if we know if you believe that we could actually prevent um, through um, giving our brains the right type of fuel, can we slow down the disease by actually boosting the right fuels um, to the brain? Yes, and it's not so much the right fuels, it's the right nutrients for the health of the vascular system is really what, what it comes down to. But yes, there is great research coming out now. The two best diets, are the Mediterranean diet and the DASH diet. Uh, the DASH is dietary approaches to stop hypertension, but it's also an excellent diet, even if you don't have hypertension. Uh, the, the Mediterranean diet is also important. Parts of the world that uh, eat the Mediterranean diet, they do not have the same incidence of Alzheimer's disease. In Africa, where they eat a very high fiber diet, even those with the ApoE4 gene, they do not get Alzheimer's disease. Fiber, very important. We used to think fiber just as it is, is for regularity, but the fiber gets fermented by the flora in our gut. And one of the substances that gets created is called butyric acid. That gets absorbed, goes to the liver and becomes three hydroxybutyrate, a ketone. So by having a high fiber diet, getting those 25 to 30 grams a day, you're going to be providing ketones for your brain. This is a very important thing. They, they did a study with uh, the canine model of Alzheimer's and they do these tests where they can measure cognition in the animals. They improved the fiber content of the dog's diet. They found improvements in cognition with the dog. So there's things that we are learning that are fascinating, but eating well, and I would, it's just like scared straight for a kid that's misbehaving, you take him to jail. Why don't you take your, your parents or your spouse to a center that treats people with Alzheimer's disease and say, do you want this to be you? Scare them, let them know the road they're on and let them know that they still have the chance to make the changes uh, to basically be on a better path. Okay, and we have another question um, coming in. I guess people are wondering, okay, if, if coconut oil is won't give me enough and I'd have to take too much, that's not good for my heart. What are the other sources? Where else can we find? What types of foods can we find ketones? Um, someone says, are there any ketones in cheese? No, there's no ketones in cheese. It's really only that short chain fatty acid. Now, any fat can become a ketone when the body's starving, but that's not what we're talking about here. We're not talking about the starving body. You will not find ketones in normal foods. You don't even find ketones in coconuts. It's just the fatty acid in coconut, those short, medium chain, eight carbon long fatty acids 
that become ketones. So don't look at foods as being a source of ketones. Look at foods as being the nurturing for uh, your vascular system, keeping your blood-brain barrier healthy, maintaining your body weight, getting the fiber that would produce ketones uh, after it's been absorbed. So the healthful diet is the way to deal with it. And then if you are really looking to ketones, again, working with a neurologist, or whatever, you would buy the sports supplement that actually is the ketone, but it's not founded food. Okay, and let's talk a little bit about inflammation because we know on the pathology of Alzheimer's, it starts with a beta amyloid plaque to tau tangles. And then um, the third um, hallmark is inflammation. A lot of times you don't see any symptoms of Alzheimer's until our brain goes into an inflammatory state. So it, are there foods? Um, we have um, one question um, coming in saying, what are the good anti-inflammatory foods and how do they relate to monitoring your antibody levels? Okay, um, your antibody levels basically are a reflection of whether there's an infection going on. Uh, so don't, even, don't think about antibody levels. Uh, anti-inflammatory foods, the same diets that we're talking about, the Mediterranean diet, the DASH diet, the whole, whole foods, plant-based diet, you'll be getting all of the anti-inflammatory, antioxidant types of things. Now, the reason there's inflammation in the brain is because the brain thinks it's under attack by a microbial substance. And it's just like when the flames begin, the fire department gets called, your inflammation is what causes the dilation of the blood vessels so that the the immune system can perfuse the area thought to be at risk and under effect so that's what inflammation does the brain thinks it's under attack inflammation inflammatory system that's why it happens so if the brain gets enough fuel the inflammatory will get turned off it won't be needed the brain's doing it because it thinks it's a, trying to accomplish a goal but it's sort of on the wrong track, that's not what's going on. So you see the inflammation that doesn't go away, but it's not because of a microbial attack. So Ed, how much more research really needs to be done to say, um, indeed, these are ways uh, feeding your brain the right fuel is a way to prevent Alzheimer's. What type of research has to go into that and how far away are we from, from knowing the answer to that question? Well, the problem with a chronic disease such as Alzheimer's is that it takes decades to develop. Most of the research is focusing on right now what's gone wrong in a brain already infected with Alzheimer's. So they look at the various cell types in the brain and they show this is how it should be normally, but this is how it is now with Alzheimer's. And they try to come up with ways of changing that. I think they're on the wrong track with those types of approaches. To me, all of this is going wrong because of decades with needing enough energy. But you can't take somebody in their 30s and have one group uh, take exogenous ketones for the rest of their life and other ones not and have match groups. It's very hard to do those, those types of studies. What I'm looking for right now is another type of model where we can learn from. And this actually is studying traumatic brain injuries, concussions because right after a concussion, the brain has this tremendous need for fuel. 
to help prevent the damage and stabilize something that's gone wrong. And what we're finding is what goes on in the brain after a concussion, a traumatic brain injury, is somewhat similar in an acute setting to what goes on chronically in the development of Alzheimer's. And I'm guessing that the research that will be done studying traumatic brain injuries using ketones as a way to prevent some of the damages caused by the neuroenergetic deficit after a concussion will be the linchpin that will start doing and getting people open to using this as a way to prevent Alzheimer's. And that's really interesting because as we all know, um, traumatic brain injury uh, leads to a condition CTE, which is dementia really, right? Exactly. Exactly. They find the amyloid, the tau protein. I mean, your brain requ requires so much energy. Some of it is, it's called protein folding, and you need the energy to fold the protein in a certain way. Then you need the energy to stabilize the membranes. Then you need the energy to prevent the damage that's caused by the concussion. All of these things. But when you get the concussion, not only does it cause that drain on energy, the concussion actually makes it that much harder for the glucose to get across the blood-brain barrier. So you've got this double-edged sword going on after the concussion. And I'm, I'm guessing that we're going to start to see ketones be used by first responders and so forth to help prevent the damage. It's, it's not going to help the actual injury that was caused by the concussion, but it'll make sure that nothing goes wrong because the brain doesn't have enough energy. So someone has just written in and said, does this apply to multiple concussions or really just one concussion? It happens every time. And the multiple so concussions. So if you have, if you've gotten a concussion, my nephew uh, was playing football, he got a really bad concussion. Um, would the right thing to do would be to supplement him with um, a higher dose of ketones? I, we don't have the data to make that statement. I'm saying that the, the information that's in the literature, and I'm writing a paper on this right now, neuroenergetics and traumatic brain injury. So I'm collating all the research and I'm hoping to have this, this paper available for a handbook on traumatic brain injuries. And I'm hoping that this is gonna get out. I'm, I'm hoping to speak at some conferences later this year in Washington about these types of things. I think it can spell tremendous relief for soldiers, for athletes, for car accident victims, for victims of falls and so forth, I think this is gonna open up a new way of limiting the damage uh, on these types of things. But if you've already done this, if you've already had these multiple injuries, will adding ketones after the fact help you to a better state of health than if you don't do that? I don't know. I think it's very, very likely, very possible, but we don't have the data to make that conclusion or that recommendation. Okay, we've obviously um, hit a hot topic because a lot of questions are coming in. One of them saying, does age matter? Um, how old you were when you got the concussion? Yes, definitely. Age matters, and not only that, your genetic status matters. If you're an APOE4 person, they have found that people that are APOE4, they have a much harder time getting over a traumatic brain injury. They have more complications, more difficulty, more issues going on. And so when you think about it, this feeds into this energy deficit after the concussion as being a player in how the body recovers. 
So more and more of this is coming on and we're learning about it. It's very exciting, but you know, people want their answers now. And so all I can tell you is what we've got, what we're looking uh, to develop in terms of research data, but you will have to make the decision with your, your practitioner as to what is right for you in any given situation. And um, another viewer just asked, but what about taking ketones before you get a concussion? Could that have a positive effect or do we just not know that yet? We don't have data to support this, but I could see it happening. I could see ketones being in the canteens of every soldier in a battle zone. I could see ketones being in the Gatorade or any sport drink on the sidelines of a football team. If uh, if somebody gets a concussion and they come out and the, and the first responders, I could see them giving giving them some ketones to drink. I could see all of these happening once we have the data to support it. But the biochemical logic is there. We just need the data to make sure this is a sound is based on sound science and we've got data to support it. So so Ed, you're writing a paper right now, but there's no planned research study. Is that correct? Well, I'm trying to work with people that are working on traumatic brain injuries. Uh, I'm trying to get them to use different models. So, for example, the way they study traumatic brain, they use animal models. Uh, uh, the poor animals, I mean, they end up you know, getting banged and they check and see what happens in the brain afterwards. But let them deal with a model that has the ApoE4 gene and see if it's different in that. Then put some ketones in their drinking water and see if their recovery is different. I mean, there's ways that you can do this, integrate this into existing traumatic brain injury research, and we could find out whether indeed it limits the impact. And that would speak volumes that you need to make sure the brain has enough energy after any traumatic brain injury. And you're highlighting really the importance of conducting studies like this. Again, we don't have the proof. We don't have the data. Um, you're speaking from your experience as an expert in the field of health and nutrition. You're certainly not prescribing to anyone and saying that this will definitely work. But it is an interesting hypothesis that does seem valid of testing. So we certainly hope. Um, that you do have the opportunity to conduct a study um, with a research group um, in order to get people like us the answers. We want to know what the proof is and what we can do really to be more proactive about our brain health. Ed, um, thank you so much for joining us. I think this was a really interesting conversation. I'm glad we got so many questions. Um, I'm sure more people will watch. Uh, we'll upload, of course, this interview will be on Facebook. It will be uploaded to our site, um, www.beingpatient.com. Um, our Brain Talks series is really to uh, create more clarity around um, separating fact from fiction, um, really understanding where research is heading, what is it that we need to know today, what's proven, what needs to be studied more in order to live to our optimal brain health. Ed Blonds, thank you so much for joining us from San Francisco. It's really been a pleasure, um, and we wish you all the luck with your research. It really does um, seem so interesting and, and valid. And I look forward to a continuing dialogue on the website. So any questions that I was unable to answer, uh, make sure you post them there, and I will stop by and do the best I can to provide you information. There was also... Uh, 
um, a link. Uh, I'll, I'll post a link to the Berkeley Wellness site. They did an interview about the uh, neuroenergetic hypothesis that I think I would recommend you uh, all look at as well, uh, because it deals with a lot of the issues as relates to Alzheimer's and, uh, and how it all comes together. Great. Thank you so much, Ed. Thanks for your time and all of that insight. I found it really interesting. And to all of our viewers, don't forget uh, to join our Brain Talks, um, Being Patients Brain Talks um, Facebook page. If you haven't done so already and you're watching this recorded, then please do join the group. We're going to have a lot of these really interesting conversations. We're bringing the experts to you so that you can ask the questions. And we're trying to sort out the science, what to, what's proven, what's not, and where should research head. So thanks very much for joining us, Ed. It was a delightful conversation, and we thank you so much for your insight. You're welcome.